As we get started today, I'm going to ask um, Jonathan if he would come up. We're going to do something, just a little bit of fun to kind of uh, have him here. But I, I've been wanting to address something with Jonathan for a while, and this being the... Oh. Whoa, whoa, don't, don't talk about my log. This isn't about me. I wanted to address the, the speck of dust that you have in your eye. I've, obviously, we're going to use this later in the service, and I really just want an excuse to bring Jonathan up in front. Uh, we're going to bring him up later at the end of the service, but I wanted to take the opportunity to express my appreciation to Jonathan. This is his last week with us, and... While we've been very blessed to have him for the last five years, I know that God has great plans in his life, uh, and God's going to use him in great ways beyond Trinity Wesleyan Church. Uh, at the end of the service, we're going to pray over you, and we're going to send you out as literally as a missionary of Trinity Wesleyan Church. But I just wanted to express to you today how much I love you, and I'm very grateful for you. So, all right. Thank you. Now you can go sit down. Thank you. I had somebody tell me that um, it's really sad to see him go, and, and there's a part of me, yeah, it's sad because I'll miss hanging out with Jonathan and doing stuff like that, but that being said, um, I'm excited to see God's plan unfolding in his life, and I do believe that God's going to do great things. So, all right, let me, uh, let me get started this morning. First of all, great to have each of you with us to be able to worship and to be able to spend some time in the Word with you. Uh, let me start out this morning by just saying that I really hope that everyone has been enjoying the devotional books that we put out this year for our Easter season. Um, I certainly uh, cannot say enough for those who wrote. Uh, we have great staff, great uh, interns who did an incredible job with all of the hard work, and I hope that you have appreciated it. One of the best parts of the church publishing a book for this, this current Easter season has been the opportunity that I had to be able to get into some of the homes of you as a church, uh, just to be able to deliver some of those books. Um, I was thrilled to be able to get in there. If I didn't get into your house, let's just say it was COVID's fault. I would have been glad to get it to your house too. But anyways, it was a great privilege to be able to come and see some of your homes. Um, of course, anytime a pastor makes a visit like that where you just show up at people's houses. There are only two ways to do that. On the one hand, I can call ahead and I can kind of warn you that I'm coming, or I could just show up unannounced. I admit that I, I did use both of those when I recently uh, made those visits. And um, I also know that some of you have already made it abundantly clear that if I ever show up at your house unannounced, it's going to be a problem. Uh, that some of you would be mortified. Some of that is because uh, because you want to make sure that your hair and your makeup is perfect, and I really do sort of appreciate that. Um, some of that is also because you want to make sure that your, uh, your, your house is spotless, that there is nothing out of place. I do want to clarify, when I make those visits, I typically am not there to critique you or your house. I'm not there to inspect your makeup to see what you look like in the morning, but I, I do actually get it. Although I'll also uh, admit that I, I've had some adventurous home visits throughout the years. I've been pastoring now for 26 years, and um, 
in one of the former churches where I served, I had a buddy who every time I would show up, you'd hear him yell, hide the beer, the pastor's here. I had another visit while we were living in Colorado Springs where the weather was really, really nice. And I know you think Colorado probably cold. Actually, most of the time it was pretty nice, although I think they were supposed to pick up a few feet of snow this weekend. Anyways, it was really nice, and the family had the windows open. And as the senior pastor and I walked up to the front door, the husband and the wife were in the midst of a heated argument cursing each other out with the windows open, which means we could hear everything. Imagine the surprise when they answered the door that day. Of course, all home visits will not look the same, fortunately. (laughs) But one thing that I love about South Carolina is the fact that often when the weather is nice, we're able to simply sit on a, a big front porch and just enjoy each other's company. It seems to be there's a little less stress for the family member who is concerned about dust inside the house. I remember the first parsonage that I lived in while we were in Burlington, North Carolina, had a big front porch that seemed to be very inviting to everyone. Of course, having a big front porch isn't always that inviting, though. Have you ever walked up on somebody's front door porch and seen trash everywhere? Um, I have, and... Honestly, it doesn't make you want to sit down and drink tea with the individual. But part of the problem is that those living in the house so often have become so accustomed to it that they no longer even notice that it's there. I wonder today what your front porch looks like. We're going to get into the message here in just a moment. I'm not talking about at your house. I'm talking about what people see when they look at you. The first impression that people get, what is the thing that identifies you? Is it the trash on the front porch or is it perhaps something else? What is the first thing people see? In Matthew chapter 7 verses 1 through 5, Jesus addresses the appearance of your front porch. It doesn't actually use that term, but it's, it's the idea that's here. Look at it with me again. Matthew chapter 7 verses 1 through 5 says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, before I dig too deep into the, the story and the imagery which Jesus is using here, let me begin by addressing the fact that Jesus is not speaking against judgment. And this is important because often this verse is taken out of context. I've heard individuals say, you can't judge me. The Bible says, do not judge. And I get it. Nobody, and I mean nobody, likes for someone else to critique them, to identify where there may be something inappropriate in their lives. In fact, 
I would much rather me figure out that I've made a poor choice or I've made a bad decision and me fix it before someone else comes to me. It just feels better because then I can say I've already addressed it. I don't know of anybody who enjoys being on the receiving end of a good rebuke. But the truth is that sometimes such rebukes are necessary. An example would be a brother or a sister who is doing something that is detrimental to their walk with Christ. If in rebuke, you were able to help your brother or sister right the ship, well then praise the Lord for it. What if you saw your brother or sister about to walk out into the road and get run over by a car? Would you not stop them? Do everything possible to keep them from continuing that journey? Of course you would. If you love them. In fact, even if you don't love them, you probably would. The point is that sometimes it is appropriate for a good rebuke. I think one of the keys for me is the heart behind the judgment or the rebuke. Last fall, I spoke about Jonah and his rebuke of the people of Nineveh. If you look deeper, I'm going to summarize it very simply. He was a racist. He was very reluctant to go and almost hoping for God's wrath to fall upon the people of Nineveh. He wasn't rebuking them because he loved them. He was rebuking them because if he didn't, he was going to be back in the belly of a fish. He didn't do it because he wanted to, yet God was able to use it. But here's the thing, nobody would say that he did it out of love, yet God still used it for good. How much more fruitful would a rebuke be if it was coupled with love? Ephesians 4.15 tells us that we are to speak the truth in love. That means that you still speak the truth, you still address sin, you don't ignore the brokenness that other people may be experiencing, but you do it with a heart of restoration and grace. You love on the people that you're dealing with. The other side of this is that the real idea is not that no judgment should occur. Instead, it is the idea that in the same way you judge others, you too shall be judged. It's about making sure that if you're going to judge others, you need to be prepared for the same type of judgment to come back at you using the same measure. Don't hold someone to a standard that you're not willing to keep yourself. Let's take a look at what Jesus says in this particular parable. In verses 3 and 4, he asks the question, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? Have you ever been shocked by the sins of another individual? I know that I have. Sometimes it's because, well, their sin is great. It's appalling. I look at the violence that takes place in our world or even in our homes today, and truthfully, it makes me sick inside. I look at things like sexual abuse that is being perpetrated against women and children, even here in the United States, and I just want to explode. I look at injustices like abortion and human trafficking, and I think to myself that I am so ready for God's wrath to fall upon humanity. 
I would imagine that if you dug deep enough into my heart, there is actually a sense of self-righteousness. I look at such acts and the people who do them, and I almost feel like I'm better than such people. I mean, I've lied. Okay, I get that. I've gotten angry, and sometimes in my anger, I've said things I shouldn't have said. Or I've lusted. But I've never done what those people have done. And there's a sense of I'm better than them because at least I'm not doing those things. I feel pretty good about myself, and honestly, it makes me think a little bit about the Pharisees. Listen to the words of Jesus as recorded in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23 and 24. He says, woe to you, talking to the Pharisees, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. First thing I want to point out here, Jesus is speaking the truth. It doesn't sound like a whole lot of love. He calls them hypocrites. He calls them blind guides. He is addressing the fact that they have allowed certain sins to exist within their lives, and they should know better. They're the teachers of the law. They're the religious leaders. If anybody ought to know this stuff, it's them. But apparently they did not. Obviously, Jesus is rebuking them in this moment. And we typically look at them from a negative viewpoint. But today I find it very easy to relate to them. Yeah, I look good in this area. And I've got these things figured out in my life. But I am still a work in progress just like everybody else. And as such, I do not look in judgment upon the Pharisees because I think that maybe... If I were around back then, I might have been able to relate very well to them. Jesus calls them out saying that you've done all of these things really well. Good job, but you've left out some really important stuff too. He commends them for the good that they've already been doing. But they should have also practiced justice and mercy and faithfulness. He doesn't say, well, you should have just done these things, but rather you should have done the latter with all of the other stuff too. He calls them blind guides. He gives them the image that you've worked really hard to strain out a gnat. What does that mean? To make sure that that gnat didn't end up in your food. You don't want to make sure, you don't want that. You ever had bugs fly into your food? Not attractive. Actually, I was out doing some stuff this week and I had a gnat fly into the back of my throat. I did everything I could to try to get that out. Like, I I never saw it come out. Um, it's a horrible thing and you don't want that. He says, but you're like one of those people you've been trying to strain the gnat out because you don't want that in your food, but instead you just swallow the whole camel. Just doesn't make sense. So like the Pharisees, we're often shocked by the sins of others. Yet in the midst of our shock, we sometimes find that maybe the people around us aren't the real problem. I know this may hurt some of you today. I don't mean to hurt your feelings, but 
What if the problem is you? What if the problem is me? Someone tells me, well, the problem is me. My first thought is, what? <laughs> me? I'd rather look at you. I want to. It's kind of like with that plank, you know, as soon as Jonathan realized that he had been hit by this plank, he points out that I, I, I hit him with it. Well, that's not what I want to talk about. I don't want to talk about my plank. I want to talk about that speck of dust that's in your eye. Because to me, that's far more important right now. Stop trying to change the subject on me, Jonathan. And the thing is, it's so easy for us to try to look at everybody else's problem, and maybe the problem isn't them. Maybe the problem is in me. Shouldn't be surprising that it is in us. Consider the words of 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 through 10. It says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. We've all heard Paul's words from the book of Romans, which declares that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Take it a step further back there in 1 John 1, it actually says you make God out to be a liar. Now, maybe you're thinking, but, but pastor, you don't understand. I, I'm not the same person I was. I'm actually a really good guy. Maybe compared to other people. Just know that sin is a willful act of disobedience against God. You say, well, but I'm not doing those things. Yeah, but if you're still allowing sin in your life, it doesn't matter what things other people are doing. Regardless of how good you think you may be, you're not without sin. Those sins include sins of what we'll call commission, things that you do that very clearly the, the word of God has instructed you not to do those things. Certainly, it's easy to look at that as disobedience, but there are also sins of omission where you don't do the things that you know you should do. You say, well, I haven't broken the Ten Commandments. I've honored my mother and father. I'm not bearing false witness. So many of us are good people, yet God has called us to do certain other things, yet we choose to disobey. You ever seen somebody in a grocery store and felt like the Lord was calling you to talk to that individual? Tell them about your faith in Jesus Christ. And then in the back of your mind, you thought, well, actually, maybe someone else would be better equipped to do that. Here's the thing. If God told you to do it and you chose not to, that's called sin. It's a sin of omission, but it's still sin. And the point is that any sin carries the same weight. The wage of sin, again, according to the Apostle Paul, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. So as you're looking at the sins of others, as you're looking for God's justice to fall upon the evil, world, evil people in our world, maybe it would be wise for us to examine our own lives. James 4, 17 says, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and does not do it, it is sin for them. I'm reminded of the prophet Nathan. Most of us will be familiar with this story. He has an encounter with King David. 
King David was a great man. King David had incredible opportunity and influence on the world around him. Yet King David, in spite of the many blessings that God had given him, King David wanted more. Most of us are familiar with this, but King David, while at the time when kings go off to war, King David chose to stay home. And while he was there, he looked out on his roof and he saw another lady on her roof. And she is bathing. Her name is Bathsheba. Ends up in a physical, adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. The problem being that her husband Uriah is actually serving King David. One of the soldiers in his own army. David ends up in a physical relationship with her. She ends up with child. And David does everything possible to try to cover it up. In fact, he's pretty good at it. Nobody knows, at least that's what everyone thinks. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, listen to the encounter that happens with Nathan and David. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. I love David's response. It says, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, this man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. I want you to know that as this story is being told to David, David is unaware that this is symbolic of something else. Nathan didn't come to talk about some guy who had his sheep stolen. He came to talk to David about the sin which David had participated in. Verse 7 of that same chapter, Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. David is furious. He wants to see this individual punished for such selfishness. And then Nathan declares, you are the man. Nathan then goes through identifying the fact that David has sinned with Bathsheba, even having her husband killed to cover up. What a... What a great illustration of what happens with us so often. We look at your sin. We look at his sin. We look at her sin. 
And as long as we're talking about your sin or someone else's sin, we love the idea of judgment. We love the idea of God exacting punishment, people getting what they deserve. And then all of a sudden it comes back to us. When it comes back to us, all of a sudden we want grace. We want to know that God is a loving and gracious God. Can you imagine the moment when Nathan declares, you are the man? And David says, what, me? (laughs) Actually, it should be noted that David, when his sin is addressed, responds with a heart of repentance. He owns his sin, seeking God's forgiveness and grace. But please note that it was probably a lot easier for David to talk about it when we were talking about someone else's sin as opposed to his own. Understand that sometimes we need to change perspectives, and when we do, it will help us to see things much better. I remember hearing years ago that the definition of the word sophomore is literally one who thinks they know everything. I actually thought that was all teenagers. I wasn't sure that it was just sophomores. The term sophomore literally means one who thinks they know everything. It was a derogatory term, denoting the fact that they really don't know everything. The idea is that at some point along the way, they will grow out of such arrogance. As they age, they'll realize exactly how little they knew. Well, I'd love to tell you that We all figure this stuff out by our junior or senior year of high school or college. Yet the truth is that it may take some people a lifetime to realize how little they know. In fact, consider the words of Proverbs 5, verse 11 through 14. At the end of your life, you will groan. When your flesh and body are spent, you will say, how I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or turn my ear to my instructors. And I was soon in serious trouble in the assembly of God's people. As we age, we begin to appreciate some of the judgment that came upon us. I remember many, many years ago, I was in college, and I I don't remember what the guy was specifically speaking about, but it was our spiritual emphasis week, and Uh, following one of the services, I felt convicted that I needed to call my mom and thank her. So I did. Actually, of course, at that point, you used pay phones, so it wasn't like she looked at the cell phone number and said, oh, this must be Mike. Actually, she didn't. She did recognize my voice, and she answered the phone. I said, Mom, I just wanted to take a moment, and I wanted to thank you for being so strict on me. You know what she did? who is this? (laughs) There was this expectation that can't be my son. Because the thing is, nobody likes to have judgment. Nobody likes to have someone be strict with them. Sometimes that's exactly what we need. I recognize that if I'd have been able to do whatever I wanted, I'd have probably done some really dumb things. And with it would have carried significant consequences. Sometimes it takes us a long time to figure that out. I remember many years ago, 
had a young man who was a part of our ministry in Pennsylvania. His name was Dan. Dan had made some really poor choices and truthfully reached a point where his drug addiction was controlling his life. After a significant event where he ended up in the hospital for about three days in a psych ward, I was asked to come and speak on his behalf so that he could get out. And I don't know what they call it here, but up there, they, if you are forcibly put into a psych ward because you're a danger to yourself, they call it 302-ing. Basically, you are 302-ed and you're stuck there until they release you. And he wanted me to come and speak on his behalf. The counselor asked the question, he said, do you think that Dan is ready to come out? Does he have enough support so that he will not harm himself when he gets out? My response was, absolutely not. If you let him out, he's going to do this again. Dan was sitting on the other side of the room, and he's the one who's invited me to come and speak on his behalf. And as soon as I said that, I saw him suddenly look up like, are you kidding me? He was furious. That day, I helped him get a bus ticket because they let him go in spite of what I had said. Helped him get a bus ticket back home to be with his family. He was so angry, he didn't talk to me for another three years. At the end of those three years, I got a phone call. Dan said, I just want you to know that what you did that day was absolutely true. And I was not ready to get out. He said, I'm sorry, I've been a jerk. I want you to know that sometimes it is unpleasant when we have to be the one who speaks the truth, sometimes is absolutely necessary. Time allowed him to recognize that. Maybe some of you have had someone who has spoken a very hard truth to you somewhere along the way. And maybe for you, you need to maybe change your perspective. Maybe you need to go back and thank an individual for loving you enough to be able to say, this is not okay. I'm not talking about you being a hypocrite where you're telling somebody else this is what you must do and then you're not living up to that standard. Clearly in the scriptures, that's not what Jesus is calling us to. But if you really love the people who are a part of your life, you can't be content leaving them where they are. So be an example of love and grace. One that says, I'm not okay with what's happening. I'm gonna love you no matter what but I can't just ignore what's happening in your life. I, I don't know who needs to hear this today. Maybe it's a family member that you've been praying for and maybe you've not wanted to say anything because if you said it, you might offend them. Speak the truth, but do it with love and grace. If I saw you about to cross the street in front of an 18-wheeler, I'm not just gonna sit back. If I can help you, I want to, and sometimes that means speaking the truth. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, as we come before you today, I, I don't know who needed to hear this message. Maybe this is unique to one individual, one family today. Maybe all of us need to be reminded. Maybe some of us need to forgive. Maybe some of us need to address sins that have existed for a long time. And we just need to change our perspective. Father, I pray today that you would help us to be the church we need to be one that does speak the truth, one that does love people enough to not be okay leaving them in their sin. 
Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be receptive when people do address sin in our lives. It's not pleasant, we get that, but sometimes it's necessary. So I pray today that you would use the people in our lives to help us become the people you created us to be. I do pray that if there be one here today that is still in the midst of their sin, Lord, that you would make a way for them to get out. Lord, I pray that you would set them free. Maybe that means people like us coming alongside them and not judging them so much as loving them, still speaking the truth, but in a way that says, I love you too much to leave you where you are. Help us to be the family you called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I do want to take a moment. Um, yeah, we still have a couple minutes. We're good. So I'm going to invite Jonathan to come, and we're going to pray over him as we send him out today. Uh, maybe you are one of those that you actually we're going to do it at the altar. Um, maybe you're one of those you like to be able to pray over an individual. Maybe Jonathan has invested in your life. I'm going to invite you as a church to come up, and we're going to pray over Jonathan today. As we send him out, you're literally going out as a missionary, not only for this church, but of Jesus Christ. And man, I, I want to hear how God works in and through you. You become the hands and feet of this church. We won't be down there in Georgia with you, but the same God who's blessed us will be there to bless you. So if you would feel led to do so, we invite you to come. We're going to lay hands on Jonathan, and we're going to pray here at the altar. Father, we come before you today, and again, we're so grateful for your grace, the fact that you would even call us out of sin, knowing the life that was lived before Christ in Jonathan's life today, but we rejoice over the redeeming power of Jesus Christ. We know that without you, the nicest way to put it, Jonathan's a loser. Jonathan is still enslaved by sin. Yet he has been set free, and today we rejoice that he is a new creation in you and that you have a plan and a purpose for his life. And I pray today that as he answers the call to go and serve as a pastor elsewhere, Lord, I pray that your anointing would be upon him. I pray that you would allow him to be a world changer. I pray that you would allow individuals to hear the gospel and know his heart and to know the love that he has for them. And I pray that as he presents your gospel, that people would respond and truly revival would break out in Georgia. Father, I pray today for those who uh, have been touched already by Jonathan and pray that you would continue to work in their lives even as he goes to the next ministry place. Father, thank you again for the privilege of being a part of Jonathan's life. Thank you for the way he's been loved by this church. Thank you for the redeeming work that is done through the hands and feet of your people. Lord, I pray that you would continue to allow this church to just be that kind of church that loves on people and finds ways to minister in people's lives. Lord, thank you for just the way things have worked out so well here 
And we do pray for your anointing um, on us and on the people there. May you be honored. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for being a part of our service this morning. I'm going to ask Jonathan if he'd go out there in the foyer with me as we shake hands and greet people as you leave. It is such a blessing to have you with us, and go in peace. We'll be back again next week to do this again.